This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Matthew chapter 6, while you're turning there, I want to say thank you to all of you who expressed your concern for my wife Sherry, whose father died a little over a week ago, and thank you for reaching out to her and encouraging her. She's on her way home right now, and it's going to be a tough day, leaving her mother, uh, who she's been serving all week. Um, would that I could fend for myself, but I can't, so she had to come home, and um, it's going to be difficult for her mom, so you can pray for Sherry's mom, but thanks again. Thanks for the concern. Her dad was a believer. Uh, he, I've told many people he died well. Uh, he was a man with faith, and so that is a unique joy. So we don't grieve without hope, and um, we're grateful for that. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're, we're going to read verses 1 down through verse 6, skip to verse 16 and read through 18, because we're going to return to the Lord's Prayer in January for prayer week. So we'll be looking today at verses 1 through 6 and verses 16 through 18. This is the Lord's Word. Don't you love hearing Jesus' words preserved in Holy Scripture, authoritative in our life this morning? We are his church. Verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. 
for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Father in heaven, I pray this morning for the gift of illumination. Let us hear Jesus' words. Let us hear this Sermon on the Mount. Grant us understanding and may it change our lives. May we live differently because of this sermon. For your glory alone, in his name we pray, amen. amen. Do your acts of righteousness. Do them to be seen by your Father in heaven. Matthew 6 begins a new section in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is the greatest sermon ever preached. Not, not my sermon, but his sermon. <laughs> Jesus is the model teacher. He is the greatest preacher in the church. His sermon is brilliant. I hope you can see this. It has a, a clear theme that unites the whole sermon together. He's teaching his disciples. He's teaching us today about life in the kingdom of heaven. Remember in the beginning of the sermon, he, he described those in the Beatitudes who belong to this kingdom. At the end, he'll, he'll come back and he'll challenge his disciples about their relationship to the kingdom. He never gets away from his theme. He never chases rabbits. He never goes on a tangent. We have to keep this in mind so we can interpret this sermon correctly. Matthew 7, if you look down at verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, when he finished the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He was teaching them as one who had authority. It was astonishing, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. This, this teaching still has authority. It still has power, and I pray that we will be astonished each and every Sunday that we're looking at this. And this, this unity just, just has an increasing effect. It just makes the, the sermon more and more powerful as we listen to it. It also has a progression of thought, and that's why it's so important to remember what's come before. Each unit develops the message. He has illustrations in his sermon. He has illustrations that are closely related to his application. He has three in the text today about giving, about prayer, and about fasting or self-discipline. And they, these, these help his disciples realize their condition. 
It may seem trivial. Prayer, giving, fasting, self-discipline may seem trivial, unimportant. Not worthy of the investment of our time and our lives. But they may matter more than we think. Let's, let's talk politics today. You want to? I'm just in the mood to talk politics. Kevin, our officer out there, somebody let him know I may need uh, an escort to get out of the meeting today. This week we had midterm elections, and man, it's another nail-biter. Isn't it amazing how close all these elections seem to be? I see the sovereign hand of God in this somehow. I know he's in control, but it's amazing that all across the country, these elections are so close. You would just think at some point somebody would run away with something, but they don't. In fact, until late last night, control of the U.S. Senate depended on two states. Apparently, it's been decided, but it was very close. And it, yesterday, it depended on two states, Nevada and Georgia, which is going to have a runoff in December now, apparently, because it was so close. And these races of two states were going to determine the control of the United States Senate for all the nation. And so it really was coming down to Nevada. They have three million people. One million of them voted. Last I heard, the winner had 6,000 more votes than the loser. Imagine that. Think about the two million people who didn't vote. Just, if just a few of neighborhoods got together, they could have altered control of the United States Senate. <laughs> such a small percentage could make such a difference. It can't seem unimportant to vote until something like this happens, and then you really do get the message, you know, my vote could matter. It, it's a privilege to have the opportunity. I think it's a responsibility to vote. I voted. So few votes can make such a powerful difference. Well, my point is, is that we, we can feel that way. Like, you know, there's a long line. I, I really don't have the time to do this. One vote doesn't matter. Well, it really can matter. And, and sometimes we can feel that way about these illustrations that Jesus gives us in his sermon. Giving, prayer, fasting. He, he could use other ones, but he used these. And he's making a statement about these. And we may think they really aren't worth understanding and applying in our lives, putting them into practice. Jesus disagrees. So let's... Let's look at this text to understand why that is. He gives us a summary principle in verse 1. It's very clear. This is a little unit in his sermon, and it's so well put together. He begins, here's the main point, verse 1. 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is, this is the main point of verses 1 through 18. It's, it's an introduction to this section. It's, it's perfectly arranged. And then he gives illustrations of this principle as it relates to giving, to prayer, to fasting, or spiritual disciplines. So, I have three points today. Number one, acts of righteousness. Number two, motives for acts of righteousness. And number three, rewards for acts of righteousness. Jesus is teaching us about practicing righteousness in our lives. Number one, acts of righteousness. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, be careful not to practice righteousness. And he doesn't even say, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. What he says in verse 1 is, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Jesus expects his disciples to practice righteousness in this life. He's concerned about our motivations, though. Why do you give? Why do you pray? Why do you fast? Why we do these things is as important as whether we do them or not. He, he clears away in this sermon, in this section, this, this misconception that gospel-centered Christians can have, that there's, there's no call for sacrifice, there's no call for discipline, there's no call for self-denial in the Christian life. He blows that out of the water. He assumes that his disciples who have been saved by grace will live lives that are characterized by acts of righteousness. Sinclair Ferguson, to an unusual degree today, Christians mistakenly think that the freedom of Christian experience, conversion, means that we no longer need to make any effort to be spiritual. Maybe you came today and thought, I don't, there's nothing I need to do to grow spiritually. Well, Jesus is saying that's not true. Christians mistakenly think that to set aside specific time during the day for prayer or to engage in deliberate acts of self-denial as we seek the Lord's face is seen as legalism and bondage. You're a Pharisee. Jesus, on the other hand, who's opposed to legalism and Pharisees, assumes that these disciplines are basic to any spiritual vitality or growth or pros prospering in your soul. And he was no legalist. He specifically then lists these three acts of righteousness. They're, they're illustrations. Giving to the needy. Giving to some sort of charity. Charitable giving. Prayer. Fasting. 
spiritual discipline that benefits us in our war with the flesh, sinful cravings of the flesh. First of all, giving. Again, verse 2. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. That's what the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. They, they have a trumpet player that they may be praised by others. That's their motivation. They want their name on the building. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you followers of Christ, disciples, citizens of the kingdom, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't tell anybody. Don't even tell yourself. So that your giving may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, he'll reward you. That's a promise. He, he describes this man who, who wants others to think that he's a giver. He's charitable. So he, he plans to give a gift, and he hires a trumpet player. Now, nobody does that today. Oh, they might. But, but we do go after the same thing. The trumpet player, his, his job was to blow the trumpet, get everybody's attention, so that nobody would miss that this man is a giver. He gives to the poor. And he's, he's got to call everyone's attention to it because he's going to give and he's going to do it publicly. Because his motivation is to be honored by them. From God's perspective, that's not a gift. It's a purchase. You're buying something. You're not giving, you're purchasing people's good opinion of you. You're using the poor to get what you want for yourself. And, and Jesus says, you, you got your reward. You blew the trumpet, they're impressed. Like I said, people don't use trumpets today, but they do have press conferences, don't they? They have ways of making sure everybody knows. And the question is, why do we want to donate money or other material possessions to people in need? Why are we doing this? And why do we feel this desire for people to know that we're doing this? That's the question that's being asked by our text today. Are we giving for his glory or are we giving for our reputation? Jesus teaches us, he teaches his followers, his disciples, those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, he teaches us to give, to be generous. He teaches us, though, at the same time to forget about ourselves. Don't, don't do it for your glory, for our glory. Forget about what others think. The Lord sees, he knows, he's watching. That's a constant refrain throughout this whole text. Don't miss that. The Lord is present. We serve the living God. 
He sees. He knows. He knows every detail. There's no need for trumpets. What a vivid picture. What a great illustration. Jesus wants to point out something to his disciples here that is so important because it's dangerous to your soul. There's a danger in our spiritual life here that Jesus is warning us about. We have to battle that inner Pharisee within. We have to fight against him. It's deceitful. It's sin. And so Jesus gives us this picture that helps us do this. If you look in verse 2, he says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Down in verse 5, when you pray, must not be like the hypocrites. Verse 16, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. The problem with the scribes and the Pharisees was that their religion was theatrical. It wasn't real. It wasn't genuine. They weren't pursuing holiness because they loved God, because they desired to bring him glory, because they wanted to know him better, because they had discovered the treasure, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That, that wasn't what was going on in their soul. They were fixed on men. They were really fixed on themselves. They were motivated by a desire for self Glory, they were proud, they were self righteous. They want other people to know because they want other people to think highly of them because they think highly of themselves. They want other people to share that. In the theater, actors didn't wear makeup in the first century, they wore masks, and it, it represented the part that they were playing. Uh, That's where the word hypocrite comes from. A hypocrite is someone with a mask on. He pretends he's an actor. She's an actress. They have a mask on. They're pretending to be one thing, but all the time, they're really something totally different. This is a warning. It's a warning. It's relevant today. We need to pause a moment. It's hard to hear, but we need to hear it. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. They're Pharisees. They're hypocrites. They they have the appearance of godliness, but really, they're lovers of self. Jesus is warning us. Paul is seeing that after Jesus had died on the cross, been raised from the dead, gone to sit the right hand of the throne of God, Paul now in the church sees exactly this happening. And that's why we have this warning. That's why followers of Christ today need to hear the Sermon on the Mount. 
The, the first part of chapter 6 is about our relationship to God. We are not of this world. We are, by the grace of God, a child of God, a citizen of the kingdom. In, in this section from 1 to 18, God is called Father 10 times. All through this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus indicates the real problem with the Pharisees and the scribes and the hypocrites is they don't know God as their Father. They don't know God. I, I had a great Father. I had a Father that really teed me up for this kind of relationship that Jesus is anticipating for his disciples with their father who is in heaven. My dad was patient. He, <laughs> he was kind. He was loving. When I was 14 years old, I remember sitting on his lap watching the World Series, and I was six feet tall. <laughs> and he was not six feet tall. And I remember not thinking a thing about it. other than the pirates were losing again. You know, dads, you have a wonderful opportunity. I hope this lands on you. I think the Lord wants to say this to you. What, what an opportunity. And for those of you who didn't have a father like I had, but in fact had a father very much unlike your Father in heaven, I just want to encourage you to rejoice because your Father in heaven is not like your Father who was on earth. Let it fill you with joy. Now you have a Father by the grace of God. The second act of righteousness that Jesus uses as an illustration is prayer. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who's in secret. Your Father who sees in secret. This is a prayer promise this is a prayer promise. Take that one out. Put it in your promise box. Your father who sees in secret, he will see you praying and you will be rewarded, says Jesus. But the illustration is of a man who loves to pray. He's a man of prayer. He's a prayer warrior. Everybody thinks so. But why does he love to pray? He loves to pray at the prayer meeting. But why? Why does he pray more in public than he does in private? Why does he pray more passionately in public than he does in private? Verse 5, so that he or she may be seen by others. That's the motivation. And he gets what he desires. People notice him, and that's it. 
Hypocrites love public giving, love public praying. And then another illustration, fasting. It applies to all the spiritual disciplines that have to do with denying our desires for food, for sex, for money, possessions, for comfort, for ease. Verse 16, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen. So you won't miss the fact, yeah, I'm fasting today. Truly, I say to you, they've received the reward. You notice, that's what they get. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Sinclair Ferguson says, use some aftershave and smile. (laughs) That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. God, the Father, is in secret. And your Father who is in secret, who sees in secret, He will reward you. Not a promise. The hypocrite in this illustration is a man, he's known to be disciplined. He fasts regularly. He always looks like he's fasting. He's always dark and gloomy, depressing. He's very disciplined, very serious, very depressing. You can't miss how godly this guy is though. No one has ever seen a smile on his face. He's not known for joy, is he? He wants people to know, and he will have his reward. Jesus teaches us to discipline ourselves. So he is not doing away with spiritual discipline, is he? But when you fast, when you fast, he teaches us, discipline yourself. Paul and Jesus agree on this point. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We'll see that as we look at the rewards. Jesus, he he wants us to practice righteousness in our lives, including disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. But, But do it. Do your training. Do your fasting before the Lord in secret. Not so that others will see it and think highly of you. Seek your reward from God. We have to exercise self-control if we're a follower of Christ. It can mean fasting food. It can mean fasting drink. It can mean controlling what we watch, what we listen to. It can, it can mean resting. It can mean diet and exercise. It can mean planning, using your time wisely, 
If any of those are, you're like, oh, I don't want to do that. Sure sign you need to. <laughs> but when you do it, be, be normal. Second main point, motives for acts of righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount, like the book of Matthew, is about the kingdom of heaven. We're meant to see this sermon as an explanation of what it means to repent and receive the gospel of the kingdom and be born again, transformed, made alive spiritually, and become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's what Jesus was doing in Matthew 4. Matthew said, this is the context of the gospel. Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, ha- is at hand. If you were trying to summarize his preaching, you would say that's what he was preaching. He was going around preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus was doing. He's, he's introduced it, Matthew says, he's introduced his preaching, this is what he's doing, and now he's explaining it in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon that, that's about the nature of this new life in the kingdom of heaven. Having received the kingdom, here's how you live in obedience to the king. A lot of times there's misunderstandings about the Sermon on the Mount and people hear it as, you know, this legalistic summons to obedience. But Jesus just doesn't hand us the Sermon on the Mount and say, obey it, go do it. Hope, you ha- hope, you're, hope you're successful. That's, that's not what he does. The call to this righteousness, these acts of righteousness, is in this context of good news. The good news of the kingdom of heaven. The good news of having your life transformed by the grace of God. Having your life transformed by this beautiful Savior we've been singing about all morning. Who is worthy of our praises? who gave his life, was raised from the dead for our justification so that we have access to the Father. We have fellowship with God in Christ, the great treasure of the kingdom. Matthew said in chapter 1, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's what he's come to do. And now, Jesus gives the two main motives for acts of righteousness in this section. He he explains what it looks like in real life, what the motivation is. He knows our hearts. And he says, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, in order to be seen by them. Why? Because then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So he says, do not do acts of righteousness 
in order to be seen by other people. He's after our motives. But he says, do acts of righteousness in order to be seen in secret by God, who is in secret and who sees in secret. Two motives, seen by people or seen in secret by God. Your Father in heaven sees it all. Remember the psalmist, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? It's a rhetorical question. Nowhere. He's everywhere. He sees everything. He even sees your heart. He even sees our motives. He knows why we do it. You can fool people, but you can't fool him. Hebrews 4, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Do acts of righteousness. Motivated by a desire for only him to know, to see. Hoping in his reward alone. Which brings us to number three, rewards for acts of righteousness. Notice rewards are all through this text. You may be sitting there thinking, rewards? I don't like that. There, there can be an impulse opposed to the idea of rewards when it comes to gospel-centered spirituality. But Jesus teaches clearly. And in fact, the New Testament teaches clearly about rewards. We need to get over any reluctance and try to understand what this is all about. Verse 1, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. We want a reward. Verse 2, they have received their reward. Verse 4, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's a promise. We should be growing like I want whatever that is, I want. Verse 6, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 16, they have received their reward. Verse 18, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says the hypocrite gets a reward and the faithful disciple gets a reward. The hypocrite's reward is that we applaud him. We honor him. Their motives to be seen by man be honored by men, to be thought highly of by men, and they get it. And that's all they get. They don't receive anything from God. We want to be motivated differently. We want to be seen by God who is in secret, who sees in secret, and who rewards. We want a reward from Him. And He can't be fooled. He doesn't miss anything. He sees it all. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, he knows why you do it. Amen. And he rewards. Your father will reward us. And there's a strong sense here. I don't, I don't think any of us would read this and think it, it just means in the next life. There's a sense. No, it's here and now. 
in this life, there's a promise. We, we, we can say the reward is not health and wealth. James and Catherine are testifying to the damage of a gospel that teaches that. That's not what Jesus says. Sometimes he gives health. Sometimes he does heal. Sometimes he gives wealth. But they're not promised every time in this text. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you didn't think I wasn't going to quote him today now, did you? There's no greater fallacy than to imagine that the moment a man is converted and becomes a Christian, all his problems are solved, all his difficulties vanish. The Christian's the Christian life is full of difficulties, full of pitfalls and snares. God bless you, you're dismissed. <laughs> All our prayers are not answered like we'd like them to be. That's not the reward. Some requests are denied. Some requests are answered in ways we didn't exactly want. So what exactly are the rewards in this life? We give in secret. We're not promised wealth. Sometimes he does give us wealth. Sometimes he does bless us. Sometimes he doesn't. We pray in secret. We aren't promised that every prayer is answered exactly as we desired. And most people my age or older will tell you, thank God. Sometimes we are healed. Sometimes we aren't. We discipline ourselves. What is the reward in this life? Well, it's things like the help of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit. Power. Strength. Peace. Comfort. Joy. Contentment. That's the reward in this life. The surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. Courage. Some, some rewards are in the life to come. As I said, my father-in-law died last week. We went to his memorial service last Saturday. We were in the room in the funeral home with family and friends, and there was an open casket. Two of my kids came, most of my grandchildren, they aren't accustomed to open caskets. So my kids tried to prepare their kids for this experience. It was common when I was a kid. We didn't go to Disney World. We went to open casket funerals. So, but now it's not the case. Oh, I remember. And I always felt uncomfortable and I thought it was wise. I never, nobody ever talked to me about it. I thought it was very wise, my kids, to try to prepare the grandchildren. I have one grandchild, try to remain anonymous. But 
everybody was thinking, you know, the kids are going to, you know, be a little afraid. She walked right up to the casket. I, I am sitting watching her. She's like looking around. That's my great-granddad. I thought, somebody better get her because she's about to grab his tie or something. And this is not going to be good. The, the body. The, the open casket is a good thing for some people. They like that because it helps them remember this person they love so much. But we, we do need to remember. And, and what my little grandchild was, that, that's not granddad. And she's right. She's discerning. He has gone to be with the Lord. He was a Christian. He didn't die in his sins. He died in faith. He believed Jesus loved him. He believed Jesus died for him. He believed that Jesus was made sin for him so that he could be forgiven of his sins and counted as righteous and could have access to the Father. And he departed. He's not in that casket. He's with the Lord. It's like Paul said, remember Philippians 1, we studied this. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me is really served to advance the gospel. He's in prison. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ, the gospel. I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. I will rejoice. Not sure I'm going to live or die. I know that through your prayers, the help of the Spirit in this life reward, this will turn out for my deliverance. Doesn't mean he's going to live. I will not be at all ashamed. That's the reward. I will have courage to die. And Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's the reward. Not in this life, but in that life. He says, my desire is to Depart what we would call dying. But he sees it as going to sleep in the Lord. He desires it to be with Christ. For he says, that is far better. He knew the surpassing value, knowing Christ. It wasn't just for the Apostle Paul. Randy Alcorn wrote this week in a blog post, in March, my beloved wife Nancy lost her four-year battle with colon cancer. All 54 years I've known her, Nancy loved Jesus. But from a front row seat, I watched a wonderful and supernatural change in those last four years. In, in 2019, Nancy wrote to a friend and fellow cancer sufferer, the cancer battle has been tough. However, my time... With the Ancient of Days, one of my favorite names for God, has been epic. He's met me in ways I never knew were possible. I have experienced His sovereignty, His presence, His mercy, and steadfast love in tangible ways. 
I now trust him at a level I never knew I could. Do your acts of righteousness to be seen by him, your father in heaven. He will reward you. He will reward you in this life. And he will reward you in the life to come. One final quote. I sometimes think that Matthew 6 is one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read in the entire scriptures. It probes and examines, holds a mirror up before us, and it'll not allow us to escape. There's no chapter which is more calculated to promote self-humbling than this particular one. But thank God for it. Because it's the... It is only the man who has truly seen himself for what he is who is likely to fly to Christ and to seek to be filled with the Spirit of God who alone can burn out of him the vestiges of sin. We're going to have second Sunday ministry time. Each second Sunday of the month, we have a special time of prayer. We have, I'd like to ask the teams to come to the front, please. Ask the worship team to come. Each second Sunday, we do this. Spirits at work every Sunday, but on this Sunday, we set aside time to pray. We invite you to come for whatever reason so that we can pray for you, so that you can experience the Lord in tangible ways, so that you can experience that reward. So the invitation is given by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Though he is dead, he still speaks. And he would encourage you to fly to Christ this morning, regardless of your burden, regardless of your troubles, the difficulties of even the Christian's life. He would invite you to fly to Christ. So please stand. And if we can, come and let us pray for you. The worship team's going to lead us in singing. For those of you who want to be at your seat, just worship the Lord. And let me pray for us. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. I pray for each and every one in this auditorium. I pray that they would encounter you for your glory and for their joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.